show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 67, Boston Resists the Fugitive Slave Act. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. Instead of recording a new episode this week, we spent our studio time working on something special that's going to air next month. Without a new episode, we also didn't want to leave you without any hub history this week. In honor of Black History Month, we collected clips from our three shows last February honoring black and white abolitionists in 19th century Boston. Recorded in the wake of President Trump's attempt to implement a Muslim ban, these episodes focus on Boston's resistance to what was seen as an unjust law. But before we hear about the Fugitive Slave Act, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. The Black Heritage Trail is this week's featured site. It begins at the Robert Gould Shaw and 54th Regiment Memorial and links 14 pre-Civil War structures and historic sites, including the 1806 African Meeting House, the oldest surviving Black church in the United States. Today, the African Meeting House is preserved as part of the Museum of African American History, along with the adjacent Abiel Smith School. The Museum of African American History describes the community that visitors will explore along the trail. Between 1800 and 1900, most of the African Americans who lived in the city resided in the West End between Pinckney and Cambridge Streets, and between Joy and Charles Streets, a neighborhood now called the North Slope of Beacon Hill. The first Africans arrived in Boston in February of 1638, eight years after the city was founded. They were brought by their enslavers, purchased in Providence Isle, a Puritan colony off the coast of Central America. By 1705, more than 400 were enslaved in Boston, and the beginnings of a free Black community emerged in the North End. The American Revolution was a turning point in the status of Africans in Massachusetts. At the end of the conflict, there were more free Black people than slaves. When the first federal census was enumerated in 1790, Massachusetts was the only state in the Union to record no slaves. The all-free Black community in Boston was concerned with finding decent housing, establishing independent supportive institutions, educating their children, and ending slavery in the rest of the nation. All of these concerns were played out in this Beacon Hill neighborhood. At the conclusion of the tour, you'll have the opportunity to visit the African Meeting House and the Abiel Smith School, the oldest building in the nation constructed for the sole purpose of housing a Black public school. The building houses rotating exhibits and a museum store open year-round. The current exhibit is Picturing Frederick Douglass, the most photographed American of the 19th century. The museum website describes the exhibit. Frederick Douglass was in love with photography. From his earliest known photograph in 1841 until his passing in 1895, he sat for his portrait whenever he could and became the most photographed American of the 19th century, more photographed than President Abraham Lincoln. In this first major exhibition of Douglas photographs, we offer a visually stunning reintroduction to America's first black celebrity, immediately recognizable in his own lifetime by millions. Picturing Frederick Douglass promises to revolutionize our knowledge of race and photography in 19th century America. It's based upon a recently published acclaimed book of the same name by Drs. John Stauffer of Harvard University and Zoe Trod of the University of Nottingham, co-curators of the exhibit. Many of the exhibition's photographs were unpublished, forgotten for decades, and previously unseen by contemporary viewers. Several were taken here in Boston. Together, the images trace Douglas's visual journey from self-emancipated man to firebrand abolitionist and elder statesman. His visual and stylistic evolutions narrate a photographic autobiography across a half-century of history. This exhibit shows Douglas reinventing himself even as he sought to transform the country using photography as a tool of reform, and becoming an astute critic of visual culture. It will highlight his use of photography in a deliberate effort to elevate the image of the African American in contradiction to the demeaning and inhumane depictions of black life often seen in the 19th century. Through dozens of photographs, the visitor will experience authentic examples of Douglas's dynamic, multidimensional activism, his public service to this country, and precious time spent with his family. The exhibit will portray a true story that helps to remove the stigma and myth associated with black people, both in the 19th century and today. 
More than 90 objects will be featured in the exhibition, including historic photographs, books, newspaper articles, and original letters handwritten by Frederick Douglass. Through interactive displays, colorful graphics, and clickable digital maps, the exhibit will draw the visitor into this important and exciting time in history. Visitors have several options for experiencing the Black Heritage Trail. You can download an audio tour, self-guide via the museum's website, or take a tour with a National Park's ranger. The Museum of African American History's Abiel Smith School and African Meeting House are open to the public year-round, six days a week, Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Park rangers are available there throughout the day for historic talks. The spring tour schedule is not yet listed, but we'll post a map and link to the audio guide in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're sticking to the theme. On Monday, February 26th at 6 p.m., the Massachusetts Historical Society is hosting a talk by Paul Finkelman of the University of Pittsburgh Law School, author of Supreme Injustice, Slavery in the Nation's Highest Court. From the publisher's website, the three most important Supreme Court justices before the Civil War, Chief Justices John Marshall and Roger B. Taney, and Associate Justice Joseph Story, upheld the institution of slavery in ruling after ruling. These opinions cast a shadow over the court and the legacies of these men, but historians have rarely delved into the personal and political ideas and motivations that they held. In Supreme Injustice, the distinguished legal historian Paul Finkelman establishes an authoritative account of each justice's pro-slavery position, the reasoning behind his opposition to black freedom, and the incentives created by circumstances in his private life. Finkelman uses census data and other sources to reveal that Justice Marshall aggressively bought and sold slaves throughout his lifetime, a fact that biographers have ignored. Justice Story never owned slaves and condemned slavery while riding circuit, and yet, on the high court, he remained silent on slave trade cases and ruled against blacks who sued for freedom. Although Justice Taney freed many of his own slaves, he zealously and consistently opposed black freedom, arguing in Dred Scott that free blacks had no constitutional rights and that slave owners could move slaves into the Western territories. Finkelman situates this infamous holding within a solid record of support for slavery and hostility to free blacks. Supreme Injustice boldly documents the entanglements that alienated three major justices from America's founding ideals and embedded racism even deeper in American civic life. There will be a reception starting at 5.30 p.m. and the talk starts at 6. Registration is required and costs $10 for non-members. We'll have a link to the registration page in this week's show notes. Now we turn to the Fugitive Slave Act. The first section of today's show introduces Lewis Hayden, who escaped from slavery in 1844 and went on to become one of Boston's leading anti-slavery voices. The second focuses on the 1850 rescue of Shadrach Menkins, when Lewis Hayden led a group of activists in storming the federal courthouse in Boston to prevent Menkins from being returned to Virginia under the Fugitive Slave Act. And the final section discusses the unsuccessful attempt to rescue Thomas Sims, who was also held under the Fugitive Slave Act just a few months later. First up, let's meet Lewis Hayden. Lewis Hayden was born into slavery in Kentucky in 1811 or 1816, depending on the source. His mother was of mixed race, including African, European, and Native American ancestry. This is of note because slavery of Native Americans was banned by this time. If a woman could show direct maternal Native American ancestry, she would have had grounds for a freedom suit for herself and her children. This matrilineal system was due to the doctrine of partis sequitur ventrum, which translates to that which is brought forth follows the womb. The principle was adopted by the slave states in the 17th century. As such, children of white women and Native American women were born free. Hayden was first owned by a Presbyterian minister who sold off his brothers and sisters in preparation for moving to Pennsylvania, a state where slavery was prohibited. Hayden was traded for two carriage horses to a traveling salesman. Ironically, the minister was a distant relative of the abolitionist and conductor John Rankin, who will show up later in this episode. 
In a short autobiographical text prepared for Harriet Beecher Stowe's Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Hayden wrote, There may be ministers and professors of religion who think it is more wrong to separate the families of slaves by sale than to separate any domestic animals, but I never met with them. It may seem strange, but it is a fact. I had more sympathy and kind advice in my efforts to get my freedom from gamblers and such men than Christians. Being owned by someone who traveled so much allowed Hayden to hear varying opinions of slavery and introduced him to the notion that slavery was considered a crime by many. I've seen mention of a pretty extraordinary happening on these travels. Supposedly, when Lewis was 14, the Marquis de Lafayette tipped his hat to him while visiting Kentucky. I'm not sure that this happened, but if it did, you can imagine that it would have had a lasting impact and given him a sense of self-worth. In the mid-1830s, Hayden married Esther Harvey, but she and their son were soon sold to U.S. Senator Henry Clay, who sold them both to the Deep South. Hayden never saw his family again, and in 1840 he was sold at auction. He was purchased by a man who regularly whipped his slaves to control them. Yet, Hayden was able to teach himself to read using newspapers and a Bible. In 1842, he married again, this time to a woman named Harriet Bell. Harriet had a five-year-old son named Joseph, and Hayden raised him as a stepson. But now with a family, and afraid that they could be separated again at any time, Hayden began to actively seek out ways to secure his freedom. Hayden approached other men, asking them to buy him and proposing that they hire him out for fees to return their investment but asking them to allow Hayden to keep some earnings and purchase his freedom. The men were Louis Baxter, an insurance office clerk, and Thomas Grant, an oil manufacturer and tallow chandler, and they did buy him. The men hired Hayden out to work at Lexington's Phoenix Hotel, where he started to save his share of the earnings for future freedom. In the fall of 1844, Hayden met Calvin Fairbank, a Methodist minister who was studying at Oberlin College, and Delia Webster. It's worth noting that Fairbank was a really remarkable man who spent a total of 19 years in prison for his work freeing slaves. He was not an abolitionist who stayed comfortable giving lectures in northern cities. He was a man of action, and he freed as many as 47 individuals. And Webster, for her work as a conductor, became the first woman to be imprisoned for assisting fugitive slaves. So the Haydens were in good hands. If ever they were to escape, this was going to be it. It's believed that Webster financed the trip, and she and Fairbank acquired a carriage to travel with the Haydens. The group set off on September 28, 1844. The Haydens covered their faces with flour to appear white, and at times of danger, they would hide Joseph under the seat. They traveled the Maysville-Lexington Turnpike, their ultimate destination being the home of Reverend John Rankin in Ripley, Ohio which was just across the Ohio River. Rankin was a well-known conductor in the Underground Railroad. And he was the cousin of Lewis's former owner, who had traded him for the carriage horses. The Haydens were left safely in Ripley, and they made their way to Canada. As they returned to Kentucky after leaving the Haydens, Webster and Fairbank were accosted by angry slave owners and the livery stable operator before they reached Lexington. Webster's landlady had searched her room during her absence and found incriminating letters linking her to abolitionists and to the Underground Railroad. Webster was arrested for assisting runaway slaves. Authorities also found damning evidence on Fairbank, and he was arrested. The driver of their carriage, a slave named Israel, was beaten until he admitted what they had done. Fairbank was sentenced to a 15-year term in the Kentucky State Penitentiary, five years for each of the slaves he had helped free. In 1849, Lewis Hayden raised $650, which was demanded by his former master, which allowed Fairbank to be pardoned by the governor. Delia Webster also had an interesting journey after the arrest, and I think it's worth deviating a little bit to tell her story. Funds were raised for her defense from Vermont, her state of birth, and her attorneys managed to win her a separate trial since most of the evidence pointed toward Fairbank. Webster pled not guilty, but she was convicted in December 1844 and sentenced to two years in the state prison. Because she was the only female prisoner, she was housed in a wooden cottage in the center of the prison yard. 
The warden was Captain Newton Craig, and he was closely related to several of her enemies, including his cousin Parker Craig, the livery stable owner from whom Fairbank rented the carriage. Craig was a strong advocate of slavery, and he regularly delivered evangelical sermons to his inmates. And yet, he was smitten by Delia Webster, and they presumably became lovers. He urged the governor to pardon her, and after five weeks, she was released. Now, after Webster was pardoned, she did not contact Craig again. Yet, he continued to write to her, begging her to return to Kentucky, and later he would help finance a farm that she purchased. Now, back to the Haydens. From Canada, they moved in 1845 to Detroit and the free state of Michigan. As a gateway to Canada, it was a major center for fugitive slaves. While there, Hayden founded a school for black children, as well as the Church of the Colored Methodist Society. But deciding he wanted to be at the center of anti-slavery activity, by January 1846, Hayden and his family moved to Boston, which had many residents who strongly supported abolitionism. After getting settled at 66 Phillips Street on Beacon Hill, Hayden owned and ran a clothing store on Cambridge Street. The Haydens regularly took in fugitive slaves. It's thought that some 25% of the escaped slaves who traveled through Boston passed through the Phillips Street home. By far the most well-known guests were William and Ellen Craft. The Crafts had escaped from the South on a passenger train headed north. Ellen was light-skinned, and she played the role of a Southern gentleman while William acted as her personal servant. The Crafts toured the United States, Canada, and Great Britain, speaking against slavery, and they became celebrated public figures. While they were still living in Boston, slave catchers were sent to reclaim the Crafts. The Vigilance Committee, of which Hayden was a member, stepped up to ensure the Crafts' safety. Ellen was sent to Brookline, and William was hidden in the Hayden House. The windows were barricaded, the locks were reinforced, and a group of African-American men were hired to protect the house. In the event that all security measures failed, Hayden had stored a keg of gunpowder in the house. He was prepared to blow up the house if slave catchers entered, rather than to surrender craft. He's said to have remarked, They will go in peace, or they will go in pieces. Fortunately, it didn't come to that. Boston was not, yet, a hospitable environment for slave catchers, and they eventually left. Just four months later, Hayden became involved in another high-profile act of resistance involving the escaped slave Shadrach Minkins, which will be the topic of next week's episode. And Lewis had many remarkable accomplishments in addition to his role as a conductor. During the Civil War, he recruited African-American men for the 54th Regiment. He also served in the Massachusetts House of Representatives and worked for the Massachusetts Secretary of State. For her part, Harriet outlived Lewis, and at her passing, her estate was contributed to the endowment at Harvard Medical School to set up scholarships for African-American students. We believe that this is the only endowment contribution to a university made by a formerly enslaved person. Next, let's learn about the Fugitive Slave Act and Shadrach Minkins, who was the first man to be captured and prosecuted in Boston under the new law. Our story this week opens in 1850, in the midst of one of the most politically polarized atmospheres this country's ever seen, at least until now. The framers of our Constitution left the question of slavery unanswered, and a series of increasingly complicated compromises were contrived to try to keep the country from tearing itself apart. First, in 1820, Massachusetts sacrificed a large portion of its territory to create the new independent state of Maine. Maine had to be created as a free state to offset the admission of the new slave state, Missouri. This allowed the balance of power in Congress to remain equal between slave and free states, at a time when both sides were threatening secession if the other gained the upper hand. The Missouri Compromise also drew a line in the sand at 36 degrees 30 minutes north, stating that no new slave states could be admitted north of that line. However, the stability lawmakers hoped to gain with this compromise was short-lived and by 1850, trouble was brewing again. Henry Clay and other lawmakers put together another compromise, a complicated dance that admitted new states to the Union and pushed through related legislation. You might recall Henry Clay from last week's episode as the man who sold Lewis Hayden's first wife and son down the river. 
Despite the best efforts of Congress, the sectional tensions between slave and free states kept building this time, until the country finally tore itself apart in civil war. The Compromise of 1850 had a lot of moving parts. Texas, a huge anchor of slave power, agreed to give up territory that would later be part of New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Kansas, and Oklahoma. In return, the federal government assumed millions of dollars in debt that Texas had run up while trying and failing to operate as an independent state. California, rich with newly discovered gold rush gold, was admitted to the Union as a free state. New Mexico and Utah territories were organized, and again Congress kicked the can of slavery down the road, leaving the question to be decided by each territory at a later date. Slave trading was banned in Washington, D.C., but anyone who was already enslaved in the city was left in bondage. The ban on slave trading in Washington is the height of political window dressing, since the small city was surrounded on all sides by the slave states of Maryland and Virginia. The final measure that representatives of slave power pushed through Congress as part of this compromise was a new Fugitive Slave Act. A previous Fugitive Slave Law had been in effect since 1793, but Massachusetts and other free states had found many ways to resist the existing law. The new law, which was championed by Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster as a means of saving the Union, was much harsher, and Shadrach Minkins would be one of the first high-profile victims. Shadrach Minkins was born into slavery in Virginia sometime around 1815. As with many enslaved people, not much is known about his early life. We know that he lived his entire life until he was about 30 years old in and around the port city of Norfolk, Virginia. We know that he was sold to a new owner in 1849. In the show notes this week, we'll link to a newspaper advertisement listing him for sale along with other enslaved people who are owned by Martha Hutchings and Edward DeCormis. One of the interesting things we can glean from that ad is that it references a writ of fieri fascius. That's a legal instrument that allows a sheriff to seize and sell the property belonging to someone who had lost a lawsuit or had a judgment against them. So Shadrach's previous owners had lost some sort of suit or judgment, and they were in such dire straits that the sheriff had to seize their property, including human property, to sell at auction and pay off their debts. One biographer speculates from that admittedly slim evidence that Minkins may have had a strained relationship with his new owner, John Debris. We have no way of knowing what his new life was like or what was happening in that household, but we do know that soon after that sale, Shadrach Minkins decided to risk everything and attempt to liberate himself from bondage. Again, there's very little evidence to show us how he made that happen, but by May of 1850, Shadrach Minkins had found his way to Boston. He probably came by ship, either as a stowaway or by finding a sympathetic northern captain who would agree to let him work for his passage north. After his arrival, Minkins made a life in Boston. He worked in a coffee house on Cornhill Street, which was one of the streets that ran through what is now City Hall Plaza. He waited tables and, by all accounts, enjoyed his freedom. Relatively quickly, he felt pretty comfortable in his adopted home. By this time, Boston had a well-deserved reputation for resisting slave catchers. By 1841, abolitionists had formed a group called the Boston Vigilance Committee, which vowed to protect escaped slaves from slave catchers and bounty hunters who might try to kidnap them in Boston. The committee was composed of black and white members with leaders like Reverend Theodore Parker and Lewis Hayden. The Vigilance Committee raised funds and provided legal counsel, but also pledged to physically stop any enslavement they saw, arming themselves with weighted wooden cudgels. And you can find a picture of an abolitionist group's cudgels in the show notes for this week's episode. By 1843, the Massachusetts legislature passed a Personal Liberty Act. Known as the Latimer Law after George Latimer, the escaped slave who inspired the law, it prevented any Massachusetts officials from complying with slave hunters. Our law enforcement agents would not detain suspected fugitives, and our jails couldn't be used to hold them. No sheriff, deputy sheriff, coroner, constable, jailer, or other official of this commonwealth shall hereafter arrest or detain 
or aid in the arrest or detention or imprisonment in any jail or any other building belonging to this commonwealth or any county, city, or town thereof, of any person for the reason that he is claimed as a fugitive slave. It made all of Massachusetts into the 19th century equivalent of a sanctuary city. We'll link to the full text of the law in the show notes at hubhistory.com slash 015. With such a strong abolitionist heritage behind him, it's no wonder Minkins was comfortable enough to work in a very public job like waiting tables in a coffee shop less than a block from the city's federal courthouse. Unfortunately for him, though, the Fugitive Slave Act was signed into law by President Fillmore on September 18, 1850. It implemented steep federal penalties for any officials in a free state who refused to do everything in their power to capture a fugitive, effectively overturning the Latimer Law in Massachusetts. It went even further, though, stripping away the rights of an accused fugitive to get a jury trial. This meant that even free African Americans could be kidnapped into slavery on nothing more than the word of a slave catcher, with no legal recourse to defend themselves, even if they'd been born and lived their entire lives as free men. This would lead to the complete undermining of trust in institutions like the police and courts, as seen in an 1851 placard that was posted around Boston, which read, Caution! Colored people of Boston, one and all, you are hereby respectfully cautioned and advised to avoid conversing with the watchmen and police officers of Boston. For since the recent order of the mayor and aldermen, they are empowered to act as kidnappers and slave catchers, and they have already been actually employed in kidnapping, catching, and keeping slaves. Therefore, if you value your liberty and the welfare of the fugitives among you, shun them in every possible manner, as so many hounds on the track of the most unfortunate of your race. Keep a sharp lookout for kidnappers and have top eye open. With federal law on his side, a slave hunter from Norfolk, Virginia named John Caphart arrived in Boston in early February with an affidavit from Minkin's owner, John Debris. In keeping with the new law, all he had to do was identify Shadrach Minkins, get a warrant for his arrest, and bring him before a judge. Minkins would have no standing to challenge his return to slavery. All Caphart had to do was keep it quiet, so Boston's notorious Vigilance Committee and other abolitionists wouldn't try to block him. On February 15, 1851, U.S. Marshal Patrick Riley and two agents met at the coffee shop with an arrest warrant for Shadrach Minkins. While they waited for Caphart to arrive and identify the fugitive, their waiter brought them coffee. Ironically, the waiter was Minkins himself. When he stepped out for just a moment, Minkins ran into a group of agents who were waiting outside. In the confusion, they seized him and rushed him out the back of the coffee shop toward the federal courthouse across State Street. Shadrach didn't fight them, but he also didn't go quietly. By this time, it was a busy Saturday afternoon on one of the busiest streets in town, and a crowd gathered quickly as Minkins was dragged into the courthouse. As the crowd around the courthouse grew, a number of attorneys offered their services to help Minkins, including Richard Henry Dana Jr., Samuel E. Sewell, and Robert Morris. However, with the rights of an accused slave curtailed by federal law, there was little they could do but stall for time. As a last-ditch effort, they filed a writ of habeas corpus with the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, trying to force a judgment on whether federal authorities had the right to detain Minkins. Unfortunately, Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw refused the petition. The delays, however, gave the Vigilance Committee time to organize and act. By this time, there were hundreds of people packing the hallway and stairwells outside the courtroom. Every time the door opened to let a lawyer or a court officer come or go, the crowds outside would yell for answers, clutching at the door, which an officer would then pull closed against the crowd. Finally, as the door opened to let attorney Charles G. Davis and a newspaper reporter leave the courtroom, a shout came from outside. Boys, are you ready? It's now or never. Some witnesses would later testify that it was Lewis Hayden himself who cried out and led the mob into the courtroom, but he would contest that fact. About 20 African-American men managed to pull the door open and stormed into the courtroom. They overpowered the officer who was manning the door, who would later say, blows were passed at me and some kicks. 
He heard a voice in the crowd say, knife him. But an older man replied, no, hurt no one. The group bodily seized Minkins, grabbing him up by the collar and the feet, and ran him out the door. The crowds outside were jubilant. They swarmed around Shadrach Minkins, patting his shoulders, congratulating him, and conveniently preventing the U.S. Marshals inside the courthouse from pursuing him. Finally, Lewis Hayden pulled Minkins away from the crowd and rushed him to Beacon Hill, where Minkins was initially hidden in a neighbor's attic. As night fell, Hayden escorted him across the river to Cambridge, and then that night a carriage would deliver him to an underground railroad stop in Concord. From Concord, he was passed to allies in Fitchburg, and from there he was taken to Canada. Shadrach Minkins would live out his life in Montreal. He worked at first as a waiter, and then tried his hand at operating a restaurant himself. He was far from the only formerly enslaved person to wind up living in freedom in Canada. He settled himself amongst the community of former fugitives, married, and raised a family. His last career was as a barber, an occupation that was common among Montreal's free black community. He never returned to the U.S., not even after emancipation, eventually passing away in Montreal on December 13, 1875. In the wake of the rescue, federal officials insisted on prosecuting those who had been involved. Nine leading abolitionists were arrested, and seven ended up facing charges, five African Americans and two whites. Lewis Hayden was among the first of the seven trials to take place in Boston's federal courthouse. In the end, prosecutors couldn't obtain a single conviction. Despite the huge crowds of witnesses who had been in and around the courthouse at the time of the rescue, Lewis Hayden was acquitted. In the show notes, we'll link to a letter one of Hayden's attorneys wrote to a supporter asking for testimony that Hayden was not the leader of the courtroom mob, and in it there's a clipping with a sample of the testimony against him. The liberation of Shadrach Minkins was a great victory for the Vigilance Committee and Boston abolitionists. However, it also provoked a strong backlash from federal officials and even Bostonians who were either pro-slavery or at least willing to live with slavery in exchange for stability. Within days, the Boston Daily Times ran the headline, Overthrow of the White Power and the Establishment of the Black Empire of Massachusetts. President Millard Fillmore was enraged. He felt that the Compromise of 1850 was barely holding the country together, and now these abolitionists in Boston threatened to upset the apple cart. He issued a proclamation on February 18th, saying, Whereas information has been received that sundry lawless persons, principally persons of color, combined and confederated together for the purpose of opposing by force the execution of the laws of the United States, now therefore to the end that the authority of the laws may be maintained and those concerned in violating them brought to immediate and condign punishment, I have issued this my proclamation, calling on all well-disposed citizens to rally to the support of the laws of their country and requiring and commanding all officers, civil and military, and all other persons, civil or military, who shall be found within the vicinity of this outrage to be aiding and assisting by all means in their power in quelling this and other such combinations. Even more than his angry proclamation, President Fillmore's final word on Shadrach Minkins was a vow to use the U.S. military to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act against Bostonians in the future. And he wouldn't have to wait long. Just two months later, a young man named Thomas Sims was arrested by slave catchers in Boston. The Vigilance Committee tried to rescue him following the same playbook as the Shadrach Minkins rescue, but the story ends with U.S. Marines marching a shackled Sims to the Boston waterfront and putting him on a ship bound back to slavery. We'll have that story and more in next week's episode. Finally, let's hear the stories of Thomas Sims and Anthony Burns. After abolitionists were able to free Shadrach Minkins, federal authorities stepped up security at the courthouse. Two more attempts were made to free men who were being held as fugitive slaves, but both were unsuccessful. This week, we continue our story of Boston's resistance to the unjust Fugitive Slave Act. After the Boston mob, led by Lewis Hayden, was able to deliver Shadrach Minkins out of the federal courthouse and into freedom in Canada, federal authorities vowed never to allow a similar rescue again. 
President Fillmore was willing to use federal troops to prevent fugitives from being rescued, a policy that would continue under his successor, Franklin Pierce. Even after the rescue of Shadrach Minkins, abolition would remain a minority position in Massachusetts. A vocal one, but a minority nonetheless. Events over the next few years, though, would take popular sentiment from a wishy-washy unionism, willing to collaborate with the slave power to maintain the status quo, to a broadening sympathy for abolition, and then to a widespread adoption of radical, rabid abolitionism. The sort of radicalism that borders on a religious fervor, and was ready to drive the country into a bloody civil war to finally answer the unfinished business of slavery. Thomas Sims made his way to Boston in March of 1851, just a month after Shadrach Minkins had been rescued from slave catchers in this city. Sims stowed away on a ship from his native Savannah, Georgia, and managed to stay out of sight of the crew until they were entering Boston Harbor. The young man, some sources say he was 23, others say he was just 17, was brought before the captain, then locked in a cabin as the ship anchored in the outer harbor. That night, he was able to pick the lock on the cabin bulkhead, steal one of the ship's lifeboats, and row his way to shore in South Boston. He found lodging in a colored seaman's boarding house and began trying to build a new life. He had trouble finding work immediately and made the fatal mistake of wiring friends in Savannah to advance him some money. A week later, an agent of James Potter, who claimed to be Thomas Sims' lawful owner, arrived in Boston and obtained a warrant for Sims' arrest. On April 3rd, Boston police seized Sims, who struggled as though his life depended on it, and stabbed one of the officers in the process. He was locked up in Boston's federal courthouse to await his fate. Boston's abolitionist community moved quickly to provide Sims with legal counsel, but was divided over what further measures were necessary. Some radicals believed that immediate action was needed to free him, as the federal court would have no choice but to return him to slavery under the law they saw as unjust. A great many moderates, however, had been disturbed and embarrassed by the effort to free Shadrach Minkins. They opposed slavery, but they also considered it their patriotic duty to work within the law of the land, even laws passed to support slave power. A white Worcester minister, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, became frustrated with the abolitionist crowd's inaction. He hatched a plan, a long shot, and on April 9th entrusted the African-American minister Leonard Grimes with a key role in the plot. Grimes was a pastor of the 12th Baptist Church, a Roxbury church that was deeply tied to the abolition movement, and generations later would be Martin Luther King Jr.'s church during his years in Boston. He had been a free man in Virginia and had served two years in a Richmond prison for his role as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, helping dozens of enslaved people find their way north. Importantly, Grimes was allowed to minister to Sims's soul while he was confined in the courthouse. Higginson entrusted him with a message for Sims. That night, he should remain awake and dressed. In the wee hours of the morning, he should move to the window of his third-story cell as though needing fresh air. At a signal from below, he would jump out the window and land on a pile of mattresses that Higginson and his group had stashed nearby, ready to drag to the courthouse wall. A carriage would be standing by, and Lewis Hayden's proven conduit to the Underground Railroad would carry Sims north to Canada. As they waited for dark, however, the plan came undone. Masons fitted iron bars over the windows of Thomas Sims's cell, and without his leap into the night, there could be no hope of rescue. Now the courthouse windows were barred, and the entire building was draped in chains. Attorney Richard Henry Dana, who had worked on Shadrach Minkin's defense and was now working on Sims's defense, watched from his office window as federal authorities fortified the courthouse, saying, Our temple of justice is a slave pen. On April 11th, the federal court issued an injunction stating for the record that Sims was the personal chattel of James Potter, clearing the way for him to be returned to Georgia. The judge said, This is the whole of the evidence, and I must say it leaves no room whatever for a doubt that the prisoner before me is the identical person described in the record as having escaped from Georgia while owing service to James Potter. Having thus stated the conclusions to which I have come upon all questions raised in this case, I have only to add that I can entertain no doubt whatever that it is my duty to grant to the claimant the certificate which he demands, and I do accordingly grant it. I feel it to be a public duty, in closing this decision, 
to express here my deep obligation to the Marshal of the United States and to the Marshal of the City of Boston and the various officers serving under them for the efficiency and prudence with which they have discharged their respective duties connected with or occasioned by this hearing. As Sims awaited his fate, Boston abolitionists attempted to buy his freedom. Vigilance Committee member Francis Jackson described it in a letter to a friend. At the time of the rendition of Sims, money enough was raised and pledged to ransom him, but Mr. Potter refused to sell him at any price. He demanded that the case should be executed and Sims should go back. He wanted to humble Boston, and he did most thoroughly. A simple slaveholder of Savannah had all the city officials and police force harnessed to his work at their own cost, and he spurned their money. Just after 3 a.m. on April 12th, Thomas Sims was pulled from his cell. Members of the Vigilance Committee had been in an all-night meeting nearby and began to gather at the courthouse. A hundred police officers surrounded the prisoner, armed with Roman-style double-edged short swords that the U.S. Marshal had borrowed from the Charlestown Navy Yard. Around the police officers, another hundred volunteers gathered, armed with hooks, clubs, and whatever they could lay their hands on. An hour before dawn, this ragged phalanx began to move down State Street, trailed by as many as 200 abolitionists. Sims held his head high, though tears were visible on his cheeks. The abolitionist crowd hissed shame, while making, as one observer said, no other attempt at disorder. They arrived at the waterfront and the ship waiting to take Sims back into slavery. As Sims was forced aboard the acorn, a voice called out from the crowd saying, Sims, preach liberty to the slaves. Sims responded with a rebuke, the last words he spoke in Massachusetts before being conveyed back into bondage. And is this Massachusetts liberty? As the ship pushed back from the dock at almost exactly 5 a.m., Reverend Daniel Foster urged the crowd to kneel and pray for the poor brother who was carried by force to the land of whips and chains. It was the first time a fugitive was delivered from Boston back into slavery, a victory of slave power over the New England abolitionists. Soon, word came back from Georgia that Thomas Sims had arrived. A week after he left Boston, Sims was chained up in a public square in Savannah and lashed 39 times across his bare back. The date was April 19th, exactly 76 years since the Revolutionary War began at Lexington and Concord. Frederick Douglass, who our president recently recognized as... Frederick Doug Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. ...commented on the terrible bargain struck by Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster that resulted in the Fugitive Slave Act. Let heaven weep and hell be merry. Daniel Webster has at last obtained from Boston a living sacrifice to appease the slave god of the American Union. A year later, posters and handbills went up around the city advertising a citywide rally to commemorate the anniversary of Sims' kidnapping, and showed that the love of freedom is not only preserved as a sacred flame in New England, but is spreading through and warming the hearts of all its people. The wound to Boston's pride had been deep and raw. It had been previously possible for moderates and the politically apathetic to ignore the outrage of Shadrach Mencken's arrest and to dismiss his rescue as a dangerous act of violence and anarchy. But with Thomas Sims' return to slavery, it became almost impossible to remain neutral. The public reaction to Sims' arrest began to swing popular opinion slowly but definitively in favor of abolition. Just weeks after the Sims' trial, Daniel Webster was defeated in his Senate re-election campaign by the radical abolitionist Charles Sumner. Three years after the shame of the Sims case, Boston abolitionists were faced with another fugitive trial, another attempt to free a fugitive, and another failure. Anthony Burns was the youngest of 13 children born to slavery in rural Stafford County, Virginia. His father died while Burns was an infant from inhaling the stone dust in a quarry where he was forced to work. His mother was a cook who was sold away to a distant town when Anthony was about five years old. His owner, Charles Suttle, put him to work at the age of six, hiring him out to other families in the area for domestic work. As a teenager, he was hired out to a sawmill, where he received a terrible injury from the steam-powered blade that would disfigure his hand and arm for the rest of his life, 
and eventually serve as an identifying mark that Suttle could use to lay claim to Burns when he arrived in Boston. Suttle continued to hire him out in different forms of labor until he eventually came to work for a druggist in Richmond, Virginia. This new career gave him some freedom of movement in the city, and he was able to arrange an escape to freedom. He befriended a sailor and was able to stow away on a ship bound for Boston. After a stormy passage of three weeks, Anthony Burns arrived in Boston in March of 1854. After moving to Boston, Burns found work in a Brattle Street shop owned by a man named Coffin Pitts. Once he was settled in, he sent a letter to his brother urging him to also seek freedom in the North. Unfortunately, although he had tried to conceal the origin of the letter, it was intercepted and given to Charles Suttle. Rather than sending a slave hunter, as the owners of Shadrach Minkins and Thomas Sims had, Suttle came to Boston himself. On May 24th, while he was walking home from work, Anthony Burns heard footsteps behind him. When I was going home one night, I heard someone running behind me. Presently, a hand was put on my shoulder and somebody said, Stop, stop. You are the fellow who broke into a silversmith's shop the other night. I assured the man that it was a mistake, but almost before I could speak, I was lifted off my feet by six or seven others, and it was of no use to resist. In the courthouse, I waited some time, and as the silversmith did not come, I told them I wanted to go home to supper. A man then came to the door. He didn't open it like an honest man would, but he kind of slowly opened it and looked in. The man at the door was Charles Suttle. He called Burns by name and asked, Haven't I always treated you well, Tony? Haven't I always given you money when you needed? To which Burns responded angrily, You have always given me twelve and a half cents once a year. This statement was seen as an acknowledgement of Suttle's ownership and doomed him to a return to bondage. Two days after Burns' arrest, abolitionists met in Boston to decide how to respond to the outrage. A large crowd of mostly white abolitionists met at Faneuil Hall. William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, said that the meeting was crowded beyond the capacity of the building. George R. Russell opened the meeting, saying, I once thought that a fugitive could never be taken from Boston. I was mistaken. One has been taken from among us, and another lies in peril of his liberty. The boast of the slaveholder is that he will catch his slaves under the very shadow of Bunker Hill. We have made compromises until we find that compromise is concession, and concession is degradation. The question has come at last whether the North will still consent to do what it is held base to do at the South. They debated courses of action for hours, whether to pursue strictly legal remedies, whether to block the streets with a human shield when the time came to move Burns, or whether simply to bear witness to the crime. A smaller group of mostly black abolitionists met at Tremont Temple, a few blocks away from the courthouse. This meeting was shorter and more decisive. Under the leadership of black abolitionist leader Lewis Hayden, subject of our last two podcasts, and of Thomas Higginson, who had organized the attempt to free Thomas Sims, the crowd at the temple decided to march immediately to the courthouse and attempt to free Burns. As word reached Faneuil Hall, the meeting there began to break up as well, and the crowd around the courthouse quickly grew from hundreds to thousands. Higginson, Hayden, and a small group armed themselves with axes and a large beam that they used as a battering ram. They rushed the doors of the federal courthouse, hacking and battering open a small opening in the doors. A shot rang out, and a guard named William Batchelder was stabbed to death in the confusion. Higginson and a few others managed to make it to an interior corridor of the courthouse, where they were met by police and soldiers in force. Higginson said that they swung clubs, driving us to the wall and hammering away at our heads. The attempt was unsuccessful, and Burns remained in chains. Higginson would later defend the action, saying, If no attempt had been made, we would have had the ineffable disgrace of seeing Burns march down State Street under a corporal's guard only, amidst a crowd of irresolute semi-abolitionists, hooting, groaning, and never striking a blow. What paralyzes us in a slave case is the timidity of the majority, the irresolution of the rest, and the want of organization of all. Men must risk something. Not only risk danger, but even failure and disapprobation of critics. The great merit of the courthouse attempt is that it was an attempt. 
A few more defeats as that before the courthouse, and we shall have a victory. After the attempt to free Burns, federal authorities were taking no chances when it came time to put him on a ship bound back to Virginia. The governor called out the state militia and armed the police, while President Franklin Pierce sent a contingent of U.S. Marines armed with a field gun. Mary Blanchard described the scene in a letter to her father, former Boston Mayor Benjamin Seaver. This last week will long be remembered as a sad one by the citizens of Boston. Many times we have rejoiced that you were not in Boston in the capacity of mayor. On Friday, at 10 o'clock, the judge gave his decision in favor of the claimant, and immediately preparations were begun for taking him away. A steamer was in readiness at Long Wharf, and the mayor ordered out all the state military and police force, and gave General Edmonds discretionary powers to keep the peace of the city. From 10 o'clock till 3, the streets from the wharf to the courthouse were lined with military, and State Street during all that time was impassable, so that businesses there were necessarily suspended. In the center of a hollow square formed of volunteers, about 200, all the worst blacklegs and pimps of the city walked the slave, a good-looking fellow. Each one of these men had drawn a sword or knife. Several companies of soldiers marched before and behind, and the artillery had a six-pound cannon all loaded. This procession was witnessed by thousands of spectators, and everywhere greeted with hisses and shouts. Many of the buildings were draped with black, and the Commonwealth Building had put out a black coffin with the word Liberty upon it. One of the police officers, Mr. J.K. Hayes, resigned his office on receiving orders to be one of that procession. Much blame is put upon the mayor for blockading the streets and putting the city under military law. Unlike the quiet and somber scene when Sims had been taken to the wharves, this time a mob of about 50,000 surrounded the armed procession, booing, hissing, and chanting, kidnappers, kidnappers. And it's worth noting at that time, the population of Boston was only about 130,000. This marked a turning point in Boston's political history. Leading businessmen and moderate Whigs, who may have backed Daniel Webster's support of the Fugitive Slave Act as a means to hold the Union together, felt betrayed by Southern slave power and its hold on the federal government. The entire state was on its way to becoming radicalized, willing to sacrifice the Union to fight the institution of slavery. From this moment, civil war became almost inevitable. After Anthony Burns was returned to Virginia, Boston abolitionists offered Subtle up to $1,200 to purchase his freedom. Much as Potter, Thomas Sims' owner, had done, Subtle spurned any effort to purchase Burns' freedom. Instead, he chose to sell Burns at a loss to a North Carolina planter for $905, simply to make a bitter point. Reverend Leonard Grimes of the 12th Baptist Church refused to give up on Burns. Working through intermediaries, Reverend Grimes was able to purchase Anthony Burns by hiding the fact that the money was coming from abolitionists. He then immediately emancipated Burns. We'll have images in this week's show notes of the two checks totaling $1,300 that were used to buy Anthony Burns' freedom. If you recall last week's episode, the federal government attempted to prosecute seven people in the successful rescue of Shadrach Minkins. After the failed rescue attempt of Anthony Burns, three of his allies were arrested. Thomas Higginson was among them, and he requested an immediate jury trial, saying, John Hancock was once a rebel. A grand jury indicted them, but one was acquitted, and the other two trials ended in hung juries. In the end, no Boston jury would ever return a guilty verdict against a defendant, white or black, who was charged with attempting to free a man accused of being a fugitive slave. Ever since he was a young man, Anthony Burns had felt called to the ministry. When he was still enslaved, he preached the gospel to his fellow slaves at Falmouth Union Church in Virginia. After they purchased his freedom, members of the 12th Baptist Church used the proceeds from a book about the case to send Burns to college at Oberlin in Ohio. After a two-year course of study in divinity, he became a minister in Indianapolis. Soon after, he answered the call of Zion Baptist Church in a small community in what was then called Upper Canada, today's Ontario, and became a pastor there. 
Anthony Burns died of tuberculosis in Canada on July 17, 1862, at the young age of 28. On May 1, 1863, a story ran in the Liberator saying, A returned fugitive slave again free. Thomas Sims, who was returned from Boston in 1851 to his master in Georgia under the Fugitive Slave Law, arrived in Boston on Thursday of last week with his family. He came direct from Vicksburg, where he had been employed as a bricklayer, having escaped from that city about three weeks ago to General Grant's lines in a dugout with his wife, child, and four colored men. Thomas Sims was received as something of a hero in Boston with a large meeting at the Tremont Temple. We'll have an advertisement for that meeting in the show notes. He recounted the 12 years that had passed since he was re-enslaved and told the story of his escape. He and his family, along with three friends, had armed themselves, then floated along the Mississippi under cover of darkness, directly under the guns of a Confederate position, before finding their way to Union lines. Recognizing the propaganda value in Sims, the former fugitive, General Ulysses S. Grant gave his family a pass and sent them north to Boston. At that point, Wendell Phillips and William Lloyd Garrison took the stage and reminded the packed house that the fugitive slave law was still in effect, even as Massachusetts men fought and died to end slavery. The end of the Fugitive Slave Act and the end of slavery itself was a slow progression as the Civil War ground on. In May of 1861, Union generals began to treat escaping slaves as contraband of war. This meant that they would take them in and prevent them from being retaken by the Confederates, with the thinking that every person who was no longer enslaved was one less person to support the Confederate economy. Congress passed a Confiscation Act in August of 1861, which made this emerging policy official. Union officers were authorized to seize property used to support the Confederate war effort, including human property. The vague text of law didn't technically free escaped slaves, so they became wards of the U.S. government, attached to the military units that seized them. Congress passed an act prohibiting the return of slaves in March of 1862, which declared that slaves from any territory occupied by federal troops were to be considered ipso facto free. However, border states those that had remained loyal to the Union but still held people in slavery, were not affected, as they were not occupied enemy territory. Even the Emancipation Proclamation, issued on New Year's Day in 1863, was not enough. It freed all slaves in the Confederate states, but since it was issued as part of Lincoln's war powers, border states again were exempt and northern states were still technically bound by the Fugitive Slave Act to return escaped slaves to their masters in the border states. Finally, Congress fully repealed the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act on June 28, 1864. The 13th Amendment was ratified in December of 1865, freeing all remaining people held in slavery in the territory of the United States. At that time, there were still tens of thousands of slaves in Kentucky and Delaware who were freed by the 13th Amendment. Thomas Sims would return to the South again, this time voluntarily. While in Boston, he had tried to enlist in the Union Army, but by that time he was over 35 years old and not exactly a prime recruit. Instead of fighting in the South, he went South to recruit black troops. He went first to Nashville and later to Huntsville, Alabama, in the heart of Dixie. The Lowell Sun noted in December 1864, Among the curiosities of the time, however, is the presence here in Nashville of Thomas Sims as a recruiting agent for colored troops. Thomas Sims, to send whom back to slavery, Boston got on its knees, shed its tears, and brandished its weapons, and the whole United States trembled and shook. He, who was in his day the most famous of martyrs, is now a quiet, energetic recruiting agent, to aid that very government which exhausted all its warlike powers and all the resources of statesmanship to return him to a state of slavery. I do take issue with the Lowell Sun here. I would say that Boston got on its feet, not on its knees. All right, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about Boston abolitionists and resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 067. We'll have links and information about Lewis Hayden and about all the attempts to free fugitives in Boston. 
And of course, we'll have links and information for this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the 19th century campaign against the death penalty in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs>